0: you Hey guys, welcome to The Big Reset, where we focus on reaching every student, every time. I'm your host, Julie Springer, and I'm so excited to be part of your professional learning community. Today, we're going to be talking with some guests about how universal design for learning makes a difference in the classrooms and schools where they are. We'll get some insight from them on how well this framework for teaching is working in their classrooms. Let's do this thing! Welcome to the Big Reset Podcast. Today I've got some um, new and different people with me, so I'm going to let them go around and introduce themselves
1: and kind of tell us where they are and what they do. My name is Alyssa Womack, and I'm an assistant principal here at Cottbell High School. Prior to being an assistant principal, I was a digital learning coach and a high school Spanish
2: teacher. Good morning, Julie. I'm Clara Cozzi. I am an Instructional Coach here at Coppell
3: High School. Good morning. I'm Mary Kemper. I'm the District Math Director and back in
0: the day I taught Algebra Two and was an Instructional Coach here at Coppell High School. That's great. I'm so glad to have you all here. It's always so fun to have such a diverse background for people to come in and talk about this. So today we're going to talk about UDL, Universal Design for Learning. And I just want to get your thoughts, we're just going to have a conversation and if you hear something that really sparks an idea in your head that you really think is important for everybody to hear about, I want you to just go with it and let us know. Uh, but we're going to take kind of a different approach since none of y'all are in the classroom at this time. I want you to think about things that you see in classrooms when you visit, things that you know that you have seen that help people that are trying to implement universal design, and. I wanted this to be more of an instructional time of how to. Does that make sense? Okay, so in thinking of the how to, let's pretend like it's a brand new teacher coming in straight out of college, and your principal has come in and said, We're going to implement universal design for learning. What do you think is going to be the most important thing for them to implement first? That's well, a heavy question, but.
1: I'll go. I think if you have a brand new teacher, you have to model your expectations for them. This is somebody who's learned everything they know about teaching while in college as a student, and now the role um, has swapped. This is now the leader of the classroom, their leader of classroom instruction. And I think before you can tell anybody, do this, implement this, we need to provide them with a model of what the expectation is this is how it looks this is how you do it and then we also need to come in with support to say and when you're ready to try it we're here to support you
2: for me there are so many parts and pieces to udl i think i echo alyssa in saying like let's make sure that we're providing opportunities for the educators to have some voice and choice too and saying you don't have to um, implement all nine Parts and pieces with all of their little bitty checkpoints. Like, pick one place that you want to focus on. And if you want to focus on um, making sure that you're providing um, different ways for the students to intake information as your first step, then do that. Or if you're more comfortable in trying to work on students' executive function, do that. Um, So, being intentional about what you're choosing and focusing in so that you can get an early win, um, even if it's a small win. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. Building on that, I want to jump on that executive functioning um, piece because we as adults are sometimes still figuring it out, like what works for us for organization. Um, We know people who are sticky note people who have sticky notes everywhere or paper calendar people and we sometimes ask each other, how do you stay organized? What do you do to remember to do things? Um, How do you... uh, And you can look over somebody's shoulder, like when they're in a staff meeting or they're listening in a meeting and they're taking notes and mimic that. And so I'm wondering how you could take what you figured out that works for your content area and your expertise and help model and teach the students that in the classroom for um, executive functioning. Um, I've also learned a lot recently and I have a lot to learn about um, living in this COVID pandemic, not quite post-COVID pandemic world, um, and operating with this trauma um, that we're bearing, this burden of trauma that we're all bearing in some way, and how that has impacted executive functioning of everyone in the world, um, especially students who are learning to operate with, say, struggles like ADHD or um, other things that are already a um, challenge and I'm I'm thinking that executive functioning in organization is a really good place to start if I was going to give somebody um, some advice especially
1: like what um, Clara said about just one and start there. You know what I think is interesting is we're talking about how this looks for new teachers but what about teachers that have been on- yeah, that because, was going to be my next question. Yeah, yeah. You have I could see where this was leading, right? Yeah, you have a teacher
0: that's been in the classroom for 20 years, and you're coming in and saying, I want you to start implementing these practices from Universal Design for Learning. Now, where do we go?
1: Well, Julie, it's interesting because I can see we all have the chart pulled up, right? Yeah. The <laughs> Universal Design for Learning chart. And when you look at the middle column, the Provide Multiple Means of Representation, Anybody that's been in the classroom for a long time that has serviced students that um, receive 504 services or special education services, a lot of their accommodations require that we do this anyway. A lot of this stuff is good teaching. It doesn't just help our learners with special needs. It helps all of our learners. So I think a great place to start with teachers that are some of our veteran or experienced teachers is to say, you already do this for. Five, six, seven learners in your class. How can you do this for all of the learners in your class and give them um, the same opportunities? And I think representation is a great place to start if you look at some of the explanations, you know, providing different options, clarify vocabulary and symbols. We've all seen things like that. Or um, illustrate through multiple media, you know being a foreign language teacher that kind of comes naturally to us but when you teach a kid a vocabulary word you can pair it with a picture you can pair it with a gesture great for learners with special needs but really great for all learners.
0: Anything else?
3: I I think we some people say the phrase like the best professional learning is the teacher down the hall. Um, I think great professional learning is the teacher down the hall and I think that we should recognize like how do you show this topic or this example or uh, maybe observe but definitely during some great team time and some planning um if you need another idea if you're like well multiple means i know this means of representation or this means of action and expression because it's what i do and it works for a lot of kids but if i want to help support all kids in my room or all students in my room um reach out to your colleagues and ask well how do you also how do you show this vocabulary term, or what are your, um, what are your methods, or what, how can I challenge myself to add just one more way? Um, because you, just like Alyssa was saying, we're doing some of these things really well, but let's push ourselves just a little bit and ask somebody for some more ideas, um, because that might be the one thing that helps one more student in your classroom, or even many more students in your classroom. I
2: want to add on to Mary. And this is going to seem like a plug for instructional coaches, and it is.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> um,
2: I mean, I think that one thing I've seen this year, because of the situation that we're in and because we are in a whole new world of education, our experienced educators realize that we're in a whole new world of education, and they are much more willing to reach out to instructional coaches and to their teammates. But to go back to what I was saying earlier about the one thing, like, hey, as a, as a person who has 20 years of experience, if you want to push yourself just a little bit, an instructional coach can come in and sit in the room, or a content director, an AP can come in and sit in the room and give you one idea of how you could tweak one thing in a really small way that's not going to take a lot of effort on your part, that you can implement this framework with more um, efficacy. I
0: think that's a good point. Just one little tweak can make a huge difference. You know, Universal design for learning, it's very natural for me, being in the special ed classroom. I mean, every student that you work with in a programs class, you pretty much are doing totally different things, but trying to get the same result. And it's so it's really hard for me sometimes to explain to people. I'm just thinking, just do it, you know? You just step in there and you just do it. And to have somebody that is an instructional coach who understands what to look for and can actually put into words what needs to change. I think that's amazing, and we really do need to utilize the people that we have here on our campus that are available to us. Um, Looking at data-driven decisions. I think that's a huge thing that we sometimes are like, I don't want to look at numbers. I just want to plan my lessons. Uh, How do you think that making data-driven decisions in creating your lessons helps?
3: I'll jump on the commonly thrown around term learning loss or unfinished learning. So all these years we've had children or students in our classroom at various levels of academic readiness. Like, they come in, and we don't exactly know which prerequisite skills they have, but we know they knew at least 70% of the course before they came into <laughs> us. That's all we really know. What 70%? I don't know. And it could be anywhere from 70% to 100%, but for somehow they passed the class before that's required for the class to now. And we, let's talk about the other side, right? Like, we could go ahead and teach today's lesson as if everybody is coming in with all the prerequisite skills and solid understanding of everything they need to know to learn this. But we know that's not really the truth. We know that there is somehow, some way that the students may or may not have that real solid understanding because it's been a long time, because um, they just didn't have that solid understanding before for some reason or maybe their understanding is now fogged by the by trauma or stress or anxiety or something else that's going on in their other classes. And so one piece of data may not look like a number. It may be an observable, quick, efficient pre-assessment. I could just say, and I'll just give a math example, if the students walk in and I hand everybody a protractor and oh. i sketched a quick little um, ray or angle on a, a sheet of paper and I just say, measure this, I'm gonna watch you. Tell me what you're doing. And I just walk around the room and I'm just observing them. Do they know how to place the protractor at the vertex of the angle? Do they know how to rotate? The, do they know how to read it? Do they know which angle to read? Could they estimate it before? And then what can they do with this information? Um, and then from there, maybe can they draw a parallel of particular lines on the coordinate plane? If I can walk around and see that these prerequisite skills are solid or not i can now group the kids and i have data that is observable like i could have made a graph and a chart and looked at numbers on this that's fine and i could have put it into any program and i could have had them do this pre assessment as an exit ticket but i could just do it as an observation then for that two or three minute investment of time i can now group my kids in flexible groups so today's groups i'm gonna have this one over here who's gonna who's ready to go and learn and and talk about um, uh, uh, parallel and perpendicular lines on a coordinate plane and i've got this group over here that i just need to do a little bit of scaffolding support to make sure they have a solid understanding of um, precise measuring and estimation and then teach them the lesson on the parallel perpendicular lines on a coordinate plane and from there Everybody is gonna be able to reach grade level proficiency in today's lesson, but I've now scaffolded appropriately. The kids who didn't need that scaffolding weren't bored and lost with it. The kids who did need it got it. I always think about Todd Rose in the myth of average, and if I'm designing today's lesson for the average kid, I'm designing for no one, but I can really just lower that teacher-student ratio and teach just what they need. And have everybody, just like you said, Julie, getting to the same objective, the same goal.
1: I love that the math teacher talked about data and didn't mention data <laughs> as numbers. I thought. I did too. I, I thought it that. was a little ironic, but it <laughs> I loved it because everything Mary said, I felt like that's what I would say. That's what I would say. Because I really feel passionate about one of, I think, the biggest missed opportunities that we have in learning is a pre-assessment. And I really mean a pre-assessment in vocabulary that students can understand so as I bring in my Spanish knowledge Clara do you know preterite verbs if she doesn't know the vocabulary preterite then that doesn't mean anything to her but if I can say hey Clara do you know how to talk about past events or things that have happened in the past in Spanish then I'm using that kid-friendly language to give a pre-assessment and then just like Mary said that two to three minute investment in that activity allows me to group Clara with some other students that I need to catch up and maybe these students who you always have native speakers in a Spanish class they know how to talk about past events to group them and give them some type of enrichment activity where they're learning (laughs) beyond um, what the design was
2: that day there's so many things that i want to add on here julie um we have time go okay. right ahead okay good so one of the things is thinking about pre-assessment um, from a conceptual lens i can completely see in a math class or in a low class thinking about skills but also um, sometimes i think teachers get overwhelmed by thinking about how do i group kids based on skills i read something recently Um, that that talks about doing pre-assessments and seeing if they understand the more macro concept because if they have a misunderstanding or misconception about that concept then you know you've got a different um, approach that you've got to take so um i think sometimes too teachers don't want to do pre-assessments because they feel like well what do i do when there's the one kid in the class who knows all of the things on the pre-assessment now i've got to come up with new things but the likelihood of even a senior being able to really grasp those understandings that we're trying to get kids to is pretty small because they don't have the life experience and the expertise to really get to that macro level. Um, The other thing that I wanted to drop in, which is, again, ironic since Mary, the math person, said no numbers, um, is, again, from the instructional coach perspective, I think that there's valid data that teachers, or I hope that teachers start to become more comfortable in collecting with what's happening in their classroom. We're talking about engagement a lot at CHS this year, and it's not easy as a a teacher who's the only adult in the room to look at in the classroom and see if every single kid is actually engaged. It's easy to see if they're compliant, but it's not easy to see if they're actually engaged. And sometimes we get a little bit self-important as teachers and think, man, that was a rocking lesson and these kids were so excited and I had so much fun, but we miss the two or three kids who were not engaged in any form or fashion. Their head was just on and they were compliant. So I feel like that's important data to start to collect too and to be aware that um, what we see qualitatively isn't always reality.
1: What does that look like exit tickets for every student would that be you know quality questioning cold calling on kids? How would you if you had a teacher that oh all my students were so well-behaved and it was my Observation and the principal came in and all the students were well-behaved What feedback would you give that teacher if she had a class full of compliant kids?
2: I mean, I think it depends on the type of engagement that you're wanting to look for. Are you looking for attention? Are you looking for effective engagement? Are you looking for um, that cognitive engagement and so if you're looking for cognitive engagement then clearly the exit tickets for the in the moment i'm using apple classroom and the kids are you know changing from red to green or whatever in their level of understanding um, i think could be really important but i feel like springer wants affective engagement even more than cognitive engagement because affective engagement leads to cognitive engagement and that is more about exit tickets where kids are reflecting on what they're doing in class but it's also about again a plug for instructional coaches there's ways that instructional coaches can help you collect data or teach you how to collect data where kids are reflecting um, you know throughout the class in this moment am I engaged how much am I engaged in this moment am I engaged And in the, the period being able to say like man as a student i'm not typically engaged when we are reading from the textbook but i am typically engaged when i'm having a conversation with a peer or maybe vice versa because i'm an introvert i don't want to have a conversation with a peer and so the kids get to reflect on their level of engagement and work on that executive function and personal goal setting
0: that's great so taking that and moving to the step of students tracking their own data Um, What are some ways that you've seen that implemented, um, like even from pre-assessments or even from previous years of knowledge and having them track to see their game? How have y'all seen that used and, and how effective do you think that is in the classrooms?
1: As a parent of an elementary student, I would say elementary teachers do this brilliantly. My child tracks Um, his reading he tracks his growth on map he can look at his map test and tell me what the results mean i think starting at a young age getting kids to be self-reflective on how they learn what they learn how they learn best those things that clara was talking about by the time we get them here in high school maybe they'll be able to say okay the teachers offered a video recording of this an audio recording of this or a direct teach and the kid knows themselves well enough to say i function better with that direct teach and so to get kids to be self-reflective i think we need to look to some of our elementary teachers and say what are you doing with students in the classroom how's this working for you and how can i apply those skills that they have already learned in kindergarten first third grade into my 11th grade science class or my you know 12th grade ap history course
2: there are teachers in this building who are doing a fantastic job of that. I wanna brag on the geometry team, um, and it's on-level geometry through honors geometry. They're not just doing it with the, quote, um, upper-level kids, um, and they are asking the kids to track their learning every single day and to keep track of that in um, a, a learning journal. And they've provided some options for kids who need that structure, but they're letting the kids choose how they want to do it. And then at the end of a unit, um, immediately after the assessment, the teacher has conferences with the kids. Okay, tell me, based on your assessment and then your reflections throughout the unit, did those things match? If they don't match, why did they not match? Um, do they not match because you didn't actually reflect on anything throughout the unit? Or do they not match and, because you have test anxiety? And if they don't match because you have test anxiety, then the teachers automatically change the grade on the test. Because that test is a snapshot, that test doesn't show the kids' actual understanding of the material. Um, So the kids are realizing that if I actually reflect and choose to engage in this, then it's going to show in my numerical grade, which we know is important to the kids, sadly. Um, So I just, I I feel like I really want to brag on them because all of them are doing that. Even um, a brand new to campus person, Zach Gonzalez, was willing to jump in and say, ah, let's take this risk.
0: Now, I will say that I've seen in working with some of the special ed kids that come down to content mastery, I've seen the little feedback cards that the kids are filling out. And I'm really excited about the honesty that the kids are starting to show of, yeah, I didn't get this lesson at all. I'm giving myself a two on this one, you know, and it's really given the teacher an opportunity to come in and say, let's fix this. If you didn't understand it, let's get this fixed
1: well we talked about pre-assessments and i think it's interesting i think everybody thinks a pre-assessment is a test right um and man claire i'd have to travel back many many years but i feel like when i worked with you when i was in the classroom you helped me reframe my pre-assessment where it wasn't um, kids working out spanish problems but instead it was kids reflecting on how well they could do the targeted knowledge and skills which is similar to what I'm hearing you say, but let's say they took a Likert scale, of one to five, and um, I can talk about my family and my extended family, and one is, I can't do that at all, I don't know the word for mom, and five is, maybe Miss Womack, I could teach you a little something about family, but, you you know, a pre-assessment isn't necessarily the test taken at the beginning and the end of the unit, but maybe in terms of a reflection. So, to um, connect back to
3: Universal Design for Learning. I, first of all, let me go back to the geometry team. Like, tears, like, it makes me so happy um, to um, hear the impact of educator reflection and educator philosophical belief in kids learning. Like, this is the The actions that they're taking is the evidence that they believe that it's really important that the kids learn that it's an investment that they are they are teaching for learning, not just not teaching just to teach. Like their their goal is learning, and teaching the kids those independent metacognitive skills, and those executive functioning skills of reflection and goal tracking, and um, it makes me really proud, and it um, gives me. Um, great um, well, great pride in the, in the educators and in the learners um, for taking the risk and, um, and it's a result of a, of a pre-K-12 um, work of, with these kiddos. Um, but, okay, so to think about multiple means of action and expression as well as the executive functioning we are mentioning before. I want to go to um, the students' digital portfolios, and I want to think about how we might um, think about the goal being related to these high-priority standards and say, well, in Algebra Two, I want the kiddos, we believe the kids uh, need to understand these different functions, the key features of the functions of the graph, the domain and range, input-output, translations, transformations, basically all these pieces of these different types of functions they study in this course. How might we have them demonstrate that in whatever way? Maybe they create a video that's an instructional video. Maybe they collect um, some type of media demonstrating it. Maybe they create an infographic or an audio recording, but how might we give them some type of rubric that's real transparent and we say, we need you to be able to do X, Y, Z. And they are able to say, by the end of the unit or the end of the year, I can demonstrate understanding of this. And that's how I am able to show my understanding. Um, And I know what um, the goal is. Um, I think about it as a a little bit like in literacy, we use mentor texts. So what if we had this mentor math, like this is the goal of what we want it to aim towards and the students able to demonstrate their own understanding and reflect about the similarities and differences between their understanding and this mentor understanding. Um, I think there's a great opportunity there to connect to multiple means of action expression for sure.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, have any of you guys ever experienced a teacher who has the students help them build their rubric? You ever, have you ever seen that done? And how has that worked and
2: and what are the benefits that you saw from that, Clara? Um, So Yak is the first person who comes to my mind in thinking about building rubrics. And for him, it's not even necessarily about building rubrics. Um, I mean, for those in the audience who don't know, Yak is a CTE teacher. And very frequently with CTE teachers, you're, you're introducing a new course and you might find out that you're teaching this brand new course just a few weeks before school starts. And I know at times he has then taken the teaks of that course and presented them to the students and had the students come up with, okay, this is the flow of what we think the course needs to be. And we wanna learn about these teaks first. And of course, he always goes back and looks at them and was like, okay, well, we need to know about this scaffolding teak first, That getting them to engage in the standards. And, and granted, it's CTE, so it's kids who have chosen to be there. But I just wanted to mention him because he takes it that step beyond the rubric Um, there's lots of educators in the building who are using single-point rubrics and a single-point rubric is where they have um, marked out this is what it means to be proficient but then they have a conversation with the students about what does it look like if you're not proficient and then the students kind of fill in here are the ways that this would go wrong what does it look like if you're beyond proficient and the students fill in here are ways that they could um, get those you know top few points And when they do that, the kids are internalizing what the standards are and what the expectations are from the very beginning of the project. Um, The teachers who have done it well take that time and realize that that 30 minutes or so that they're spending engaging in the rubric is important and valuable time for the kids. Um, The teachers who haven't done it well realize very quickly that they needed to spend that time and typically go back and do it later on in the unit. So um, that's just an encouragement that I have. It, that time seems on the front end like it might be a bit of a waste, but it is not a waste in any form or fashion. Um, clarity precedes competence for both the teacher and the student.
1: You know, I look around the room and I could say we are an experienced group, and that's the word that I'm going <laughs> to choose. But... Thank you. That is so kindly of you. You're welcome. Think (laughs) back to rubrics we probably made as a teacher. And, you know, you have the bottom piece that says presentation, right? And you always grade them on the presentation. And then you have the kids that are like, I'm not a good artist, so mine doesn't look very good. And that kind of triggered something in me when I would design rubrics. Like, so now this kid got a great grade because their poster was really pretty. And they worked really (laughs) hard on it. But did they show mastery of knowledge? And I think that was kind of a turning point in the classroom for me where I sat down with the kids and I'm like, all right, what do you want to be graded on? What do you think is important about this activity that you want feedback in, because kids are number-driven, a grade on? And you'd be amazed, and especially this helps with the advent of technology because that definitely makes the pretty presentation a little bit more equitable. You know, the non-artists don't have to worry about drawing, but... It really was a conversation with kids when I was like, am I focusing on the right things when I'm grading? Um, and it was great to sit down and say, what do you want to be graded on? And literally, it was just a brainstorm. Throw it up on the board, let's see, and we can agree what's important to to be evaluated on and what's not.
0: So that just brought to mind for me, and I've not had the experience in the last 15, 20 years of doing that with students because I haven't been with students that would create their own rubric Um, and so I'm thinking using this for a pre-assessment activity with your students do you think that that would be beneficial to the kids do you think that that would be successful in the classroom if you used building a rubric as a pre-assessment
2: I can see that conversation being somewhat like Mary was talking about earlier when you're walking around the room watching the kids interact with the protractor, as you're listening to them have the conversation, you can tell who knows what and how much they know. Um, The kids who really understand the concept are going to be able to tell you what it's going to look like to go beyond and what it's going to look like to go below. The kids who don't understand it are just going to repeat to you what's on the rubric if you're using a single-point rubric or if you're um, trying to create from the very beginning you're not going to have much to contribute. This is this challenging question because I'm thinking
3: about some of the things that I want them to do involve making connections to prior learning and I was thinking about how well the students in the room are bringing their prior learning to the table but they don't have the experience of the learning they're going to have. So, how can we kind of find that nice blend? I'm wondering if it could be done in like an inquiry setting. Like, here's an example of what you're going to be able to do by the end of this topic or unit. What do you notice? What do you wonder? What is it that you realize you need to learn? More like a workshop model. And um, like, if you say, if they're showing, like, they've only studied, say, linear and quadratic graphs, which would be like a line and like a U shape. Um, What do you notice about this third type of graph that's similar and different and what do you need to learn about? So I'm wondering if it could be in a sense noticing and wondering the differences between what you're seeing as this mentor or final product compared to what they bring to the table now and then they could in a sense map out I need to learn about this, I need to learn about this graph, I need to learn about the situation or This type of equation I've never encountered one like that before and maybe that's how they could um, create some type of at least starting point rubric.
1: Sounds like we need to ask our friends over at New Tech about that because it's a very um, PBL sounds like I feel like um, example that you gave Mm -hmm. and and I remember watching another Spanish teacher Daryl Lee do something very similar um, along those lines about where the kids are telling you which PBL? Maybe we need to call it UDL. I mean, it fits under so many umbrellas, but, you know, this is what you need to be able to do. What what do you need to do to get there, and how do you need to do it, and how are you going to do it? Yeah, all, all good questions,
0: and um, I, I think the thing I really take away from our conversations every time is that relationship aspect that we as teachers have to build with the students, if we don't have those relationships, we're not going to have honest conversations with them. If we don't have honest conversations, it's not going to benefit anyone. And so I think that, you know, I think to me, that's first step is those first two weeks that we take here at CHS of building those relationships and working with our kids that if we don't take that time out of learning and do it then, then it's not going to happen. Well ladies, I just want to thank y'all for being here today. I appreciate everything that we've talked about, and I hope that people that are listening to this feel comfortable enough that they could reach out and talk to any of you guys about any of these things if they have uh, more questions. So, I hope you guys have a great day. <laughs> sure and listen to our next installment of the Big Reset podcast, where we'll join three more educators and discuss other elements of universal design for learning. I want to thank Clara Causey, instructional coach at Coppell High School, Alyssa Wolmack, assistant principal at Coppell High School, and Mary Kemper, the director of mathematics for Coppell Independent School District. Special shout out to Monday hopes for their music, Orange Juice on the Table, available at pixabay.com. I'm your host, Julie Springer, and I hope you have a wonderful day. May your coffee be stronger than the learners in your classroom.